This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Two-year-old Utah boy saved his twin brother after being trapped under a dresser. What should parents be considering when it comes to safety? What uh, What's different when it comes to a child's safety now from, say, 20 years ago? Uh, joining us now is Terry Carson, parenting expert, mother of four, and keynote speaker, theparentingcoach.ca. To find out more, she is with us now. Hello, Terry. How are you today? I'm very good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate that. What were your thoughts when you saw this video? I thought a picture is worth a thousand words. Boy, is it ever. We've known about this as a problem. This is not new news in that regard. IKEA, for example, has known about this for years, as some of their furniture has a uh, um, tendency to tip over if people or kids are stepping on the drawers. Anchors have been provided for free with, with you know um, safety kits. However, it makes a big difference to the consumer when they can see it for themselves. And that little, that little clip that we've been seeing for the last 24 hours speaks volumes. What are your thoughts about the parent releasing this? I think it was very brave and courageous of these folks. Why is that? It's an interesting dynamic that goes on in the parenting world, and that is parents are often very critical of other parents. It's a funny dynamic. We're not particularly critical if you're, you know, if, if you get into a car accident, or we're not particularly critical if, you know, you made a mistake at work. But in the world of parenting, and I've been doing this a long time, parents are often very, very critical of each other sometimes and other parents. And so I think this mother was probably a little bit afraid to make it, you know, to make it visible to the world that they made a mistake by not anchoring that furniture down. Why do you think there was not more of a backlash this time? I think a lot of people did recognize the courage that it took for these parents to, um, to make this public and put it out there. Um, I think part of the reason is it was a, a, a good story, that there was no real harm done. You know, there were no deaths involved, and there have been deaths in the past. So I think on a lot of levels, it was palatable to the general public. Hmm. Uh, I also found it fascinating on another level how the other twin tried desperately to help. Yes, and, and children are, um, and on some levels, they, they get it. Even though these were very little people, they were only two years old, they understand um, when something's off, when something's wrong. And they have a tendency to want to try and fix it. So this was very much in character. A lot of people say, well, it was twins. I think it was an older sibling. The same thing would have happened. Yeah, good point. Uh, we've seen, uh, I mean, you walk into any house, you're going to find, my guess, at least one piece of furniture or dresser that will easily topple over. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem that there's one sort of make or, or model that is more susceptible to this than others. Uh, anything that's standing upright, and, and especially when you see those little guys start to climb up the, the drawers, uh, uh, you know it's just a matter of time for, before something like this happens. And, and oddly enough, this was more of a vertical dresser, it appeared, than a horizontal one. So, uh, you know, proof positive that even, even one's dressers that look like they're, they're harmless certainly aren't. What kind of tips, what kind of ideas can you give parents to, to stop this sort of thing from happening? And is it a case where you have to bolt down every piece of furniture like this? In some, in some cases, yes. Certainly tall bookshelves is a very good example of where you would want to bolt it down. Um, some dressers are more stable than others, and so you, you know, might want to test your, your child's dresser by literally pulling, pulling out the drawers and putting some pressure. Fifty pounds of pressure is about, you know, you could probably manage to put yeah. a fair bit of weight with your arms and torso on a drawer, and if it starts to tip, you know that this is not safe. One of the things that, um, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier, you mentioned that I have four children, and, and I remember <clears throat> they're grown now, but I do remember when they were little. And one of the things that I began to realize is just bolting a piece of furniture or a bookcase um, to the wall may not be enough because there are certain kinds of anchors that you really need to make sure are in place. So just putting a screw in the wall may not keep it down. So I hope your listeners are aware of the fact that if you've got drywall, 
It has to be anchored either to a piece of wood, so mm-hmm. it's got to be the, the stud in the wall, or you can buy special drywall anchors that have very, very heavy, deep, um, uh, they're much deeper screws. They're, yeah. they're, they're, much, um, they're much wider in, in, um, in their, I'm, I'm certain no, I know the what word, you mean. but yep. anyway, mm-hmm. in their design. Um, and, or you can buy those, those um, heavy-duty ankles that are called toggle anchors, and they, they basically go into the wall, and then they spread out like a wing. Yeah. So you really need those kinds of, of plugs that are going into the wall first, and then you can screw your screw in and, and, and anchor down these particular pieces of furniture. Um, as a grandmother now, even I am beginning to anchor down some of the furniture that I'm concerned. Yeah, you know what? That's a great point because you think once your kids get older, I'm out of this phase, but it's for anybody who brings little kids into your home. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I mean, there's great websites out there. One of my favorites is WebMD, M for medical doctor. So WebMD is a great place for, for consumers to go to for tips, and they've got some wonderful tips online for safety-proofing your home whether it's in the bathroom or whether it's in the kitchen or generally around the house. And I, I encourage your listeners to do a little research and, and really make sure that your home is childproof, particularly for this age group, that 36-month, 18-month to 36-month age group. These little people are very curious. They poke, they prod, hmm. they climb. And well, looking at that video of those two boys, there you go. You see it in action. Yep. It's like watching a couple of panda bear cubs. Absolutely. That's a good analogy. It really I like is. That. You know, they're going to spot something high up on a shelf or on a dresser or even on a stove that they're interested in grabbing, and they're going to make every effort to get there. So we really want to make sure that we childproof our homes. But even that's not enough. You have to be on top of these kids. Yeah. You have to supervise. Yeah. And, of course, parents can't supervise their children every second of the day. That's probably why mom and dad had a nanny cam in mm. that home, in that bedroom. But nevertheless, just be aware that this is a very vulnerable age group. And, and supervision plus safety um, protocols is what you need to make sure that these kids grow up to be functioning adults someday. Why are we talking about this now? Is this happening more now? And I'm just saying that, like, I'm a 50-year-old guy. I remember my mother telling me a story of uh, they had matching children's furniture, and uh, it was quite popular back in, you know, the 60s and 70s and such. And it actually fit into a corner and very much like a tall, slender shelf. And apparently I climbed up it and over it went, and, of course, I don't remember anything about it. Um, but this, is, this has certainly been happening for a long period of time. It's not like it's anything new. Right. It certainly has. And there's been, you know, people working hard to get furniture manufacturers to really make sure that their furniture is stable, particularly dressers. Because, I mean, you pull out the third drawer, the second drawer, the first drawer, now you've got a staircase. Yeah. And this is kind of what we saw in that video, how easy it is to climb through the drawers and use them as stepping stools. And but 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 you know your own case in point as a child you remember a piece of furniture toppling down on you so so there has been a movement for well over twenty years for furniture manufacturers to to really make sure that um, particularly children's furniture is safe and well balanced and you can do that that's a design problem mm-hmm. that's a design issue. How lucky was this child? Because you see, watch this video, and it just happened to be the way the child rolled and just the way the dresser fe- uh, fell. It seemed if it was just even a few centimeters the other way, the, the, the baby's head could have been crushed. Sure. Well, there's a couple of things that made, made this a good scenario. Number one, the dresser appeared to be empty. Yeah. So that was number one. Number two, um, it wasn't as tall a dresser as some. It mm-hmm. was wider, so it did have six shelves. But they were stacked in three drawers, so it you know three levels versus yeah. six tall levels. It was only three levels high. I think that made a big difference. It also appeared to be a fairly light piece of furniture. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a big, heavy, you know, mahogany or oak um, mm-hmm. dresser. It appeared to be fairly light. So you know, thank thank goodness that the other twin was able to move. And, and get his little brother, uh, you know, really just slide it off him. In the, yeah. But you could see, you know, the little boy was crying. You know, yeah. the second brother was definitely crying. And I don't know if he was terribly hurt or whether he was just shocked, but he was upset. Yeah, very true. 
Uh, so do you think having this piece of video now will will go uh, a long way in preventing this sort of injury? Because it seems to be this is the first sort of real-life scenario I remember seeing like this. Yeah, I sure hope so. And, and as I say, this because this is, you know, visual, because we've actually got a little video, it makes it very real for people, not just, you know, parents who are who have children in this age group, but, but other people, whether they're aunts and uncles and, and children are visiting in their homes or friends who maybe are childless, but they've got, you know, children visiting because their friends' children are coming over. Anybody who is an adult who, who has seen this video can understand that this is a, you know, this is a cautionary tale and that we all should be paying attention when we have little people in our homes as visitors. Uh, you were talking about the website uh, WebMD to get some safety tips and such. Any other uh, places, resources where parents can go to uh, help and, and safety-proof the, ki- the home for the kids? Specifically, I don't have any, you know, top of mind, but really just Googling, you know, how to safety-proof mm-hmm. your home, and there's, there's a wealth of information out there. There are actual stores that you can go to that have equipment for safety-proofing homes, you know, even just watching things like sharp furniture, whether we, you know, put some bumper pads on them or, you know, even televisions. I mean, televisions have fallen down on children. They love cords. Yeah. So, you know, hide the cords or, or duct tape them down. Let duct tape maybe be your new secret weapon. I don't know. But but really just becoming aware that for, for children, particularly curious children that are at an age where they want to climb and explore... Um, you know, just make sure your home is safe and and ready for uh, this age group in particular, but not just this age group, uh, younger and older children too. Terry Carson has been with us, parenting expert, mother of four and keynote speaker, theparentingcoach.ca to find out more. That's theparentingcoach.ca. Terry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we've certainly heard of uh, the hacking scenario in regards to the U.S. Uh, presidential election. Um, many organizations, well, I, most of the organizations involved in, in, in uh, investigating this, like the CIA and the FBI, have said that there is uh, absolute proof that uh, they may not have affected the outcome of the election, but they certainly hacked into uh, uh, computer systems uh, in the United States. Uh, as this investigation continues, we find out that an IP address at Hydro One may also have been linked to this in some way, or was linked to it in some way. Uh, however, uh, Hydro One has been saying that with this scenario, uh, that uh, this site was not active, and that this address was not active, and as a result, there is really no, no uh, security threat whatsoever to Hydro One. However, that being said, yet you have to wonder how they got this far. Uh, it turns out that this was not a direct involvement, but sort of a stepping stone. To tell us more about all of this, Daniel Tubok uh, is with us. He is, with, he is the CEO. Uh, CEO. Well, let me start again. Uh, Daniel Tubuk is with us. He is the CEO of Cytelligence Incorporated, an expert in cybersecurity and, uh, of course, uh, testing these systems and seeing what they're all about. And Daniel is with us now. Hello, Daniel. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So what is the actual link between the Russian hack and the Hydro One IP address? How are they related? How are they connected? You know, from looking for some of the items that are circulating out there in terms of data and information, we don't have anything official yet as a as 100% confirmation. There are things that are floating to show evidence of some Russian uh, involvement in, in this latest uh, incident. Um, but basically how, how it works is there is some traces, some information, that certain IPs and assets at Hydro One were utilized as part of this particular attack. So how does that happen? Explain to us how or, or why this would be uh, advantageous to anyone hacking. So a cyber attack today, you know, everybody's you know, interpretation of a cyber attack, I think, goes back to Hollywood, where there's a bunch of uh, kids sitting in a room and they're taking over the world in a, in a different part of the world. What happens today when you look at a cyber attack, it's like look, looking at little pieces of a puzzle. So they're leveraging different assets, different computers from around the world in collaboration in order to conduct a certain attack. So how does this relate to Hydro One? 
is they could have leveraged IPs or digital assets that are residing at Hydro One as part of their attack because they would need millions, sometimes, you know, multiple of millions, uh, different pinpoints around the world to correlate a particular attack somewhere, right? So everybody probably always remember uh, the, the last uh, uh, DDoS attack that occurred a couple of months ago where uh, the big DNS network went down. That had almost a billion packets of data floating a second in order to take him down. So they needed to utilize different digital assets to just attack him all at the same time. So they sort of use these addresses as a stepping stone? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now, again, you know, the scary part about this is that they could have used it just as a stepping stone, and hopefully that's where it ends. In some cases, they actually breach the environment and go a little bit deeper than that. So is Hydro One safe then? Is our electricity system safe? Uh, again, you know, a little hard to comment on that. I think, I mean, again, again, I, I don't know Hydro One personally, but I think that they're doing a, a good job. Uh, obviously, nobody is 100% protected. That's impossible. Uh, but it's important that their, their strategy and their focus is on, on the various breaches and vulnerabilities that can occur out there. So we talked about this being a, this link being a stepping stone of some sort. If Hydro One was fully secure, would they have been allowed to do that? Would they have been able to do that? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, from from what I from what of the information that I uh, looked at is that some of the IPs that were exposed or or penetrated were IPs from a system that was set up in in the late 1990s. Uh, could they potentially need a revamp? Maybe. Uh, it could be part of a system that maybe doesn't have access to the critical infrastructure, right, in terms of the grid and so on. Uh, but again, we don't know. It's uh, would love to see some kind of comments from Hydro One uh, regarding that. Uh, hopefully, it has nothing to do with their actually critical system infrastructure. Uh, they did comment and say this was an old and inactive IP address uh, that was not in use. Uh, would that have made it easier to hack? Absolutely. So one of the problems is in every critical infrastructure or, again, uh, hydro-type uh, organizations, there's older legacy systems, and then they built new modern systems. When they're completely segregated, that's not a problem. The issue, uh, you know, gets uh, a little bit uh, bigger is when the old system is, is the pillar for the new modern system. So those legacy systems actually serve. That's where the problem is. So hopefully they're separated. We'll have to take their word that uh, <laughs> that they are segregated, but uh, we don't know that. Uh, we've certainly heard reports in the past on how all over North America there are concerns over the energy grid and this sort of thing happening. How big a problem is this? Uh, are these facilities staying ahead of this? You know, it's uh, I, I won't be pointing fingers now. We we obviously do this kind of work. It's uh, you know some are better than others. Uh, you know, one of the things that we are seeing is Europe, as an example, has a, a much bigger focus on critical infrastructure in terms of protecting it uh, from this type of intrusion. Uh, in North America, it really goes by, you know, state by state, and it goes down to a granular level of city by city, uh, where some of them actually make the decisions on how well to protect themselves, budget, expertise, and so on. One of the biggest problems all over the world is that the grid and, and, and you know, this type of organization's critical infrastructure is one of the biggest targets out there for hackers. Hmm. Uh, so what do you think Hydro One is doing today? What sort of meetings are they having regarding this? Well, <laughs> they're, uh, they're, I, I think, first of all, there was uh, a lot of coffee made today. Yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of concern going on. Uh, you know, I, I hope that they're gathering everything in a room and actually asking some tough questions in terms of how did this happen, uh, you know, what are we doing about it? How is our other systems protected? When is the last time we've done a penetration test? Uh, when is the last time we've done a security assessment? Uh, did we fix what we found? Hopefully those are the questions that are being asked today around the table. You bring up a valid point, Daniel. How do you test this stuff? Because chances are the person who's trying to hack in is using things that you haven't heard of yet. Uh, you know, to be, in, in, in all honesty, 89% of all breaches can actually be uh, can be you can actually protect yourself and can be avoided mm -hmm. if you're proactive about your security. The the interesting parts are you know unless you're dealing with with a real 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 state sponsored attack and usually there's help on the inside and not to get into mission impossible seven here, 
but usually you're protected. The vulnerabilities that are being exposed are usually old systems or old uh, type infrastructures that have not been, been brought up to par with today's security measures. I'm just going to give you an example. There's an average about 80 plus vulnerabilities a day that are exposed. So if they keep yourself updated, you're, you're, you're doing not too bad. But for example, if for three months you did not up, upgrade all your vulnerabilities, you, you can do the math, right? I mean, you have hundreds and hundreds of potential weaknesses in your system, right? What, over and above the system itself and what you have to do to secure it, what about the personnel who work with all of this stuff? I mean, don't we have to be watching them as well as much as we're watching the infrastructure? Absolutely. One of the biggest problems we're having today when it comes to personnel is there, there isn't enough training and education for the IT guys. And the security, the security responsibility falls on the IT guys, and that's wrong. IT is IT, and then there's security. We're kind of asking IT guys to make sure that all security is up to snuff, hmm. right? Without the proper training and proper uh, proper strategies, proper investment, and so on. So it kind of it, it kind of takes two to tango. You can't just rely on somebody just to know how to do something or Google their way out of it. How much more aware of this are we now? Is this the new terrorism? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Uh, we are definitely more aware. Uh, people are actually understanding this is not a bunch of crazy kids sitting trying to just put a smiley face on your screen. Hmm. We have state-sponsored attacks out there. We have governments. We have a lot to gain by doing things to other countries from a remote location. So it's no longer just about fun and being a pain in the butt. It's actually about changing data, uh, hurting businesses, and so on. Uh, how difficult is it to make sure you are protected all the time? You know, there is no such thing as 100% protection or 100%, uh, uh, you know, 100% secure state. It's, it's impossible. Uh, security is, is, is a process. It's about education. It's about upgrades. It's about investment. It's kind of a little bit of a cat and, uh, cat and mouse uh, chase. Uh, so you always got to be on top of it. You got to be thinking about it. You got to continually investing it. I often see companies sitting there in, in their big board meetings saying, well, how protected are we? And somebody says, well, you know, we're not really protected. And there's always the question, well, how much is going to cost for us to be better protected? Mm. And once you give that figure, somebody says, no, no, we'll just deal with it when it happens. That was my next question for you, Daniel. How often <laughs> is this, you know, the, the horse has already left the barn and they're asking people like you to come in and close the door? Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you just an example. We, ha we handle hundreds of breaches a year. That, 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 that should, and that's probably a very small piece of the puzzle. So just giving you a little bit of an example. Uh, Daniel, every day there's something happening. Uh, Daniel Tobach is with us. He's the CEO of Cytelligence Incorporated. Daniel, how difficult is it to trace or track this sort of thing, specifically when we're talking about what's happening in the United States with the Russian attacks and how we obviously discovered this Hydro One IP link? How difficult is it to track these people down and, and figure out what's happening? So it is very difficult, not impossible, but it is very difficult. One of the reasons is, is, you know, there is no current legislation in place between North America and Europe, or North America and Asia, North America, for example, with, with Russia. There is no legislation that will provide us an ease of sharing information between the law enforcement agencies. Um, with that said, so we have to go through around, and it's almost like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? Um, that's one of the issues. There's a lot of things that you can do to, to, to cover up your tracks of where you're coming from. And a simple example is they use Hydro One. And I can guarantee you that this is just the beginning. We'll, we'll have more additional information being uncovered as we go along. There's been other companies in Canada that were used as a stepping stone to get into the U.S. So this, you feel, is just the tip of the iceberg? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what about other systems? We seem concerned about the electrical and the electricity grid. Uh, there's been chatter of that for, for months or even years now. What other things hold the same amount of, of, of threat or, or, could, or could, of course, support the same amount of damage? Is there other, other systems that we should be aware of? Absolutely. So, I mean, when you, look, when you think of uh, critical infrastructure, um, it, you know, it's basically, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's water, it's hydro, um, it's a uh, different electrical grid and so on. Look at our financial system. Imagine if our financial system went down or there was a, a dispute, right, different trades and different issues that could occur there. So we, everything that is basically in terms of government and what we rely on, 
right? And this is chemical sectors, you know, the commercial facilities, communication, you know, and so on. These are all part of our critical infrastructure. Uh, they I'm cannot go down and they cannot be tampered with. Uh, obviously, spying is nothing new. It's been going on between countries for uh, for decades and decades. Is this just the new way to spy? And how do we manage this from a worldwide perspective? You know, you don't spy on me. I don't spy on you. But I guess we should just expect everybody is spying on everyone. Everybody are spying on everyone. You know, this is, uh, you know, cyber. And not to sound like something out of James Bond. <clears throat> you know, everybody got tired of rain, wearing long uh, raincoats and, 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 and cool little hats while they're looking and taking pictures. Mm. There's a lot more information you can discover about someone even being in a different content today, right? You have access to different systems and so on. So this is the new spying of the 21st century. It's easier. Nobody has to get kidnapped and there's no shots fired. Right. Will we see, uh, you talked about the cost of this and how for companies, once they find out the cost, they're sort of apprehensive about doing this until, of course, there's some sort of threat or attack. Uh, can you see the day when money from, say, military budgets goes into something like this as we need less guns and bombs and more intelligence like this? Uh, you know, I, I, maybe in the very far future, uh, personally, I feel in terms of organizations and companies, they should not be a reliance on the government hmm. uh, unless you're in a particular sector. Again, could be like a critical infrastructure uh, that already gets certain fundings from, from the government. One of the biggest issues that, that people are a little bit uh, miss this is that security is, 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 a, is, a, is a way of thinking. Just like we today, everybody locked the door and put the alarm on when they leave. That's security. Hmm. As we rely on the digital footprint of us out there, we will have to invest and just do things a little smartly. You know, you tell somebody 100 years ago, you're going to have to spend money on a lock and potentially put alarm monitoring on it. They would say, well, I don't want to afford this. I don't want to do this. I cannot provide this physical security. We have to have the same frame of mind transpire into the digital world. But we also have to put pressure on technology companies on making their products more secure. So they're secure out of the box rather than, you know, having the cost internally on businesses. You, you talked about uh, energy grids or chemical industry or, or, or other industries that could be affected by this. Are we on the edge of something big happening or do we have a, as good a handle on this as we, co as, as we can at this point? Uh, I'm going to be very straightforward. I, I, I don't know. You know, we're, Scott, we're always on the verge of something big happening. But there's big things that happen every single day. Uh, not all of it reaches, of course, and floats up to, to public knowledge, but there's always things that happen. Um, it just matters, you know, how, how critical it is uh, for, for, for it to float on top. Daniel, I just got an in interesting email from a lady named Jennifer. She says, Quick, uh, quit perpetuating the Russian hack lie, stupid and irresponsible reporting. What is your take on that? <laughs> Daniel? Scott? Yes. Did you hear me? Can you hear me, Hello? Daniel? Has Daniel lost me? Hello? Can Scott, you... I lost you. I lost you there. Sorry about that. Uh, are you back now? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, oh, I can. Okay, so we just got an email from a lady named Jennifer, and she says, Quit perpetuating the Russian hack lie. Stupid and irresponsible reporting. What is your take on that? I'll say this. I mean, and I, and I, I, I just go based on the information that is available for the public to see, and then you got to make your own judgment. As it stands right now today, there's no, at least they did not release that yet, there is no direct correlation to the Russians being involved in this. There is theories, there is strategies, and so on. To call, to, call, to call this a perpetrated lie that the Russians are behind it, I think are very strong words, because we don't have proof yet to, to deny or to prove that they are behind it. I thought I thought the latest I thought the latest information, Daniel, was we do have proof that they've been in. We just don't have proof that they affected the election. Well, we don't. You see, the proof that they have does not actually correlate this to a particular state department. If if if, if we're going to get technical, they're saying that there's IPs that are related to to the Russian territory, a Russian state, but they're not proving that yet. This is supposed to become. They're all promising to release this, right? Mm -hmm. Again. Just, just like we've seen before in other major world breaches, is there could be redirections. It could be another, uh, another state that is involved in just redirecting their traffic through Russia and so on. So what they're seeing right now is showing and pointing fingers at Russia, 
but we cannot yet say this is a smoking gun. We have 100% proof that they're behind us. Uh, will we know more on Friday? Apparently there's going to be some sort of presser then. Is that just an update on all this, or will we find I'm, out more? I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to that update, and I'm hoping that they're going to release some concrete, what I call legal, uh, court-approved type evidence that shows where these IPs are from and who is responsible behind that, so they can show the proof behind their, behind their allegations. Uh, again, I'm just going back to what this person said. Quit perpetuating the Russian hack lie, stupid and irresponsible reporting. Who would be responsible for the hacking? China? <laughs> Does it matter? You know... <laughs> Does it... Like, somebody has obviously hacked the U.S. intelligence system. Does it matter if it's Russia or China? You know... Or, or, sh- or could it really be some... Could it really be some kid in, in their parents' basement? No, no, I, I, I will tell you right now, whatever happened, this is not a kid in a basement. I, I, I can tell you that much. This, is, uh, this would take some serious intelligence and processing power uh, in order to, to, to go through with. So somebody uh, within a large organization or country is behind this? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. <laughs> so h- h- how do we not perpetuate a lie with this, Daniel, as this listener accuses us of? You know, again, everybody are entitled to their own opinion, right? Of course. Uh, based on the information that are out there, there's definitely, you know, what I call arrows pointing at, at Russia. Uh, Friday will be a very interesting release in terms of, you know, some evidence behind this. Again, there are certain assumptions that you do have to make, right? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's usually a duck, right? So. <laughs> uh, there you go. A very, very simple explanation for a very complicated problem. Uh, Daniel Tobak has been with us, CEO of Cytelligence Incorporated, expert on cybersecurity. Consulting includes penetration testing, vulnerability assessment, security audits, and code reviews. Daniel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. It is 1256. You know, the interesting thing about Jennifer is it does say more to the blog that I've written today that you'll find at 900chml.com is that people are now becoming so suspicious of everything they don't even trust the people on their own team anymore. Quit perpetuating the Russian hack lie. Stupid and irresponsible reporting, says this uh, listener. Okay, I guess it's just some 35-year-old in their parents' basement that's bringing the country to its knees. Uh, Either that or perhaps someone who's got family in Russia. I'm not sure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. In regard to uh, uh, the the Russian hacking, uh, Linda writes, Dear Scott, thank you for responding last month. Uh, See my remarks on Donald Trump as a supporter. I don't normally do this, but I'm exasperated by your interview before a break by a hacker or expert, a technology expert on findings who is behind the leaks. Uh, in the hacking of the DNC and the Clinton campaign, and even in spite of... And also, like, everybody thinks this is just an attack on uh, the Democrats. The Republicans were hacked as well. And that doesn't seem to be making the news much, simply because Hillary lost the election and the Republicans didn't. But both both camps were hacked. Both, ca- both ha- uh, camps were hacked, not just the Democrats. So again, I, I'm, I'm, I keep coming back to the point where, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with uh, n- assuming that someone who's normally right isn't right. Nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong when we believe our enemies more than our leaders. And I'm not saying that's the public's fault, but there is something wrong. I understand why Donald Trump got elected. I do not understand why he continues to spread mistruths before reports are in. I do not understand why he, he, he just sits on the sidelines and throws out 120 characters on Twitter and then leaves it all up in the air for his uh, experts or for his staff the next day to uh, digest or decode for the rest of us because he never really answers the questions. He just sort of spouts off stuff and then runs and hides behind his keyboard again. 
I mean, these are issues that require answers, just not someone spouting out 140 characters and then going dark. You know, others are assuming it's Russia. Well, he's assuming it's not. And he somehow knows more than the CIA or the FBI does or that we know. So what is it? You know, everybody's saying, well, the reports are not in saying that it's Russia. Well, the reports aren't in saying that it's not Russia. And everything leads to it being Russia. So, you know, I, I and again, I keep coming back to this. Like, what has it got? Like, this guy has convinced people that Russia's everybody's friend. And that there's a new relationship here that none of us, that none of us expect, that none of us can understand. And what it says to me is not that we've become friends with Russia and that we all of a sudden love Vladimir Putin. It's that we don't trust our own leaders. So it's not as if these people, you know, it was the same thing when Castro died. People were painting a picture of all the great things that he did for people. Well, ask a Cuban. Ask a Cuban who's not afraid to talk in front of a camera. Like, it's bizarre. But this is the socialist sort of society we've become as the leaders of capitalistic parties have left the middle class behind. So I'm not sure it's everybody loves Russia. It's they just don't trust their own. Which all of a sudden, I guess, could make Russia more appealing. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, feel free to uh, offer your opinion. You can send us a note at 900CHML, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And, of course, the phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Abdul is on the line. Abdul, what are your thoughts? Hi, thanks, Scott, for taking my call. I appreciate this. Um, what I'm more concerned about is why nobody's, why anybody's not talking about how many votes Donald Trump won by in Michigan, in Wisconsin, he only won by 10,000 votes in Michigan. When they took it to court, they found, the judge found out that there was 449,000 votes now not counted because the machines that the Republicans used in the, what we call the urban cities. like What do you mean the machines that the Republicans use? The Republicans and the Democrats use the same machines. What are you talking about? No, uh, they vote in the same but, machines. Everybody yeah, votes with the, the same machine. In charge of the, but who's in charge of the machines? Well, it's not. It's not the Republicans. That's for sure. No, it is the Republicans. If you look into it, the Republicans control the machines. Of the, uh, they control the machines in 2000 when Bush won. They control the machines when. How Trump do they? Won. How do they control the machines? What are you talking about? Well, the company that they get the voting machines from. They. Those are re- people who are Republican donors own those machines. If you look oh come on! Them, Are you serious? Yeah. I'm how can serious. you? How can you draw? Uh, my goodness! I mean, there's companies that 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 employ both Democrats and Republicans. How how can you say that all the republic all the machines are Republican based or Republican influenced? But, but their donors own those machines. That's true. And and in 2012, Mitt Romney's donors owned those machines too. But the reason they couldn't cheat that election is because uh, Obama just won by so m- many votes that. He carried Electoral College very easily. This time, it's not my opinion that the judge said 449,000 votes were not counted. That wasn't my, that's that his. I'm not his questioning opinion. that. I'm questioning your point that says all the voting machines are run by Republicans. In, in those states they were, in Michigan, Wisconsin, in And Ohio. in the other states where they run by Democrats? No, listen. What I'm trying to say. Is I am listening. You're saying that they were all they were all run by de- by Republicans. Does that mean that the other machines in the other states were run by Democrats, or were they run by no, Republicans no, all too? Run by, most of those machines are run by Republicans, and the people who own the companies that are owned by those machines, who and those people who own those companies, majority of them, ninety eight percent of those people donate to the Republican Party. I would say I would say that most people who are in business are conservative or Republican. Most people who own businesses are conservative or Republican. But that, most people who own businesses have bought off, bought, bought off all these politicians through, uh, through our campaign finance. And, and, how, do you, so and, and but, how do you know that? And why is this any more less a conspiracy theory? I know theory? that? It's obvious. You just have to look at the, when, when the SEC, when, they, when, when Trump and Hillary and all the candidates, uh, they, they, have to sh- they have to show... You know what, pal? At the end of the day, guess what? At the end of the day, the Democrats lost. Got to move no, on. I agree with you. 
you. You got to move on. I, like okay, to sit there and say to sit there and say that the Republicans controlled all the voting machines or the voting machines the, in that state. I didn't say that was the only reason. I'm just saying in, in the swing states, Scott, that is really important. Just like in Florida, when Gore lost Florida, look how many votes didn't get counted. It's not my opinion. Michael Moore did a documentary on that. Everybody studied. Everybody has studied the. Bush if everybody Moore. has studied it and everybody knows it's the knows it's the truth, then why uh, is that the case? Because Al Gore is part of the system. Why do you think Hillary Clinton? Why, why did it take Jill Stein to fight that to fight the recount and not who gave her the money? Hillary Clinton gave her the money. Everybody knows this, Scott, who looks deep into this. The reason she can't fight it because she's part of the system. Al Gore, look at him today, billionaire. He met with. So what, I don't understand what your point is in all of this, My Abdul. Point What's is, your it's point? It's a corrupted system. They're all in it together, and all I'm telling you is that the Republicans have been cheating. That when they win, they cheat. When Democrats win, they so win how do you? So so. So you're convinced that in the swing states that Republicans control all of the voting machines? Well, yeah, all those swing states are uh, governors. They're, they're Republican governors. Okay. All right. Michigan, all right. Michigan, all right. Wisconsin, Ohio. All right. Thanks Florida, for the call, Abdul. I appreciate it. Oh my. All right. Uh, let's move on. Uh, should all political candidates be bilingual? Kevin O'Leary hasn't officially entered the race. However, one of the other candidates has urged him to take part in the Quebec City debate, which will be in French. To talk more about all of this, Greg Flynn is with us, political science professor, McMaster University, and is with us now. Hello, Greg. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks, Scott. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, let me ask you a question that's totally unrelated to what we're about to talk about. All right. Do you feel that uh, it's getting to a point Point where more citizens are believing our enemies than they are our own leaders? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, I, and of course it has no answer, but I would, I'm interested in your opinion. No, I, I mean, you're obviously referencing the, the United States and the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union. There's, some, <laughs> there's a slip for you. Uh, and Russia in that sort of ongoing debate. I, I, I think the difficulty with, with that is that we aren't actually hearing much of a difference between our own leaders, or at least the leaders in the United States and our enemies, right? I mean, Trump is sort of echoing the same line that, that Putin that Putin is, so I don't know that there really is that much of a difference between the two. But I think there is something there in terms of the polarization of our debates, our political debates, where we're more likely to believe our side, whether that comes from our own people or from a foreign enemy, as opposed to... Uh, listening to what the other side has to say. Are we at a crossroads or turning point, not only in North America, but perhaps around the world? Are people becoming more and more disenfranchised? It just seems this this new year, people were more pessimistic. They certainly were, at least that seems to be the popular sentiment, but these things tend to come and go in waves. I mean, I think we tend to think of this as being the worst time ever, but if you think back to 2000 with Gore and Bush, there was quite a degree of polarization there. If you think back in our own politics uh, with the election of Stephen Harper, there was a great degree of polarization there, but we seem to be moving back towards some accommodation of the center in Canada, as we have in the past. So it tends to go in waves as opposed to we're in a brand new world, a brave new world now than ever before. All right, let's talk about Kevin O'Leary, uh, obviously uh, not bilingual. Uh, this obviously a, a concern if someone wants to be prime minister of this country. Does the prime minister have to speak French? Well, ultimately, I think that's a choice that voters make. And historically, they have made the choice to say that political leaders who don't have at least a strong working grasp of the French language aren't really leaders that are... Uh, warrant serious consideration. I mean, I think Diefenbaker might be the last one who wasn't strong in French, who uh, was able to garner sufficient support to be able to, to, to form a government. But if you think back over the last 30 or 40 years, political leaders who didn't have a strong grasp of the French language just weren't acceptable. Uh, he feels that if he appeals to millenniums or millennials, rather, that that will make up for anything he loses with uh, not speaking French and that uh, French speaking people will still understand his economic stance. Uh, does that fly nowadays? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I think Quebec is, what, 78 seats. So there are a quarter of the, the seats in the House of Commons. And if you look back at their 
voting record in the province of Quebec, they really tend to favor their own uh, favored sons, right? I mean, you can we can go down the list of, of prime ministers that come from the province of Quebec. But even if we think about Stephen Harper, that he didn't really get a lot of degree of, or the, the Conservatives Reform Party didn't get a lot of support in the province of Quebec under other leaders until Mr. Harper showed up both with a an agenda that was broadly supportive of the nationalist goals in the province of Quebec, as well as having a fairly strong grasp of the French language, certainly not his first language, but it was more than passable. Even then, he was still only able to get uh, 10 out of 75 seats. So, uh, you know, it's difficult to form a government when you're giving 65, 70 seats away to the other parties in the House. How will Quebec give him a pass, or will they, uh, to say, you know what, I'm going to start learning it and I'll be better in the next year or so? What would be some sort of compromise, or is there a compromise? Historically, you could go back to the Liberal Party that used to have an English leader with a very strong Quebec lieutenant. Um, But I think those days have come and gone with the idea that leaders are the penultimate source of the authority in the party, and they don't tend to share that authority or share that limelight. I don't know that voters in the province of Quebec would accept a political party with a leader who is not from Quebec or has a strong basis in the French language. In your thoughts, uh, is Kevin O'Leary a viable candidate? Sure, he's a viable candidate. I mean, uh, by virtue of the, uh, the way that they're the Conservatives are choosing their leader, he uh, will obviously attract a lot of support probably on the first ballot, and he seems to be a bit of a compromised candidate who might attract a lot of support outside the province of Quebec on second or third ballots. Uh, Conservative leadership candidate Lisa Raitt uh, came out today and basically said that uh, uh, Kelly Leach and Kevin O'Leary uh, accusing them of antics, thea- uh, theatrics, uh, cheap talk, and will drive people away from the Conservative Party. How do you think that's? How do you think her statements are going to play? Well, I think that's obviously something for the Conservatives to discuss whether they want to look inward and secure the base. You know, they have a very strong base somewhere around high twenties, maybe low thirties in terms of support in the Canadian population. Do you keep mining that base? and hold it, um, or do you make broader appeal to communities that uh, led the Conservatives to a majority government, right? I mean, when the Conservatives have sort of pitched to their own, they were in a minority status in 2006 and 2008. When they broadened their appeal, they, uh, they were able to find support in the suburbs and other communities that hadn't previously supported them in, a, in quite a while. So I I think, obviously, when Kelly Leach and Kevin O'Leary talk to the base, they run the risk of of limiting the appeal of the party itself. So I think what has Kevin—I can see what Kelly Leach has certainly done and the things that she said in around immigration. What is it that, that Kevin O'Leary has said that draws that kind of ire, do you think, other than the fact that he, you know, he, he's certainly pro-business? Yeah, I think it's probably just the same type of rhetoric that Trump has used without any real evidence to support those foundations of those statements, or he makes sweeping statements that just aren't true in fact or lack the context that require an understanding. Is the Canadian economy doing fantastic? No, but a lot of that's driven by the fact that the price of oil is only $50 a barrel. If the price of oil was $100 a barrel, given... Kevin O'Leary's logic, uh, Justin Trudeau would be an economic genius. So, you know, I think those are the type of statements that he makes, the bald assertions without any facts or context to back them up, that the type of populist anchor. Is it fair to put him and Trump in the same category, though? I mean, I mean, what Trump is saying, even post-election, I mean, Kevin O'Leary hasn't even come close to. Yeah, I don't think Kevin O'Leary is the same kind of racial immigrant kind of bashing approach that Trump did. And we certainly see that more with Kelly Leach than with Kevin O'Leary. But the idea that he has no experience in government, that he thinks governing is simple, is just a matter of getting out of the way of business, uh, belies the complexity of what government is and what government does. What do you think Canadians are looking for in a leader today? Well, I think the public opinion polls already tell us that they're happy with the one they have for the most part. Um, 
I think they they look for somebody who's likable and appears competent and willing to listen. Uh, Stephen Harper had a reputation for being quite prickly, but he he was obviously very competent at what he did, mm-hmm. and people were prepared to trust that. Not a lot, right? I mean, even his majority government wasn't an overwhelming majority in the same way that Trudeau's first majority government is as strong as it is. So, you know, there's something to be said about likability versus competence, and if you were to compare Harper and, and Trudeau, you'd have to say that the sort of likability factor matters more than the the competence factor. That's not to say that Justin Trudeau is not competent, because I think it's a combination of both of those things. But we like we need to like who our prime minister is. And uh, the feeling is is that the progressive conservatives now have to be more likable, have to be warmer, have to be more warm and fuzzy, as opposed to uh, standoffish. Well, I think that I mean the lesson is that you might be able to secure a majority victory if you can demonstrate competence, and the opposition parties, particularly the liberals, are not likable. I think that's what 2011 tells us. It wasn't so much that the conservatives won a major wave of support. It was that nobody really liked who the liberals had on offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we see the sort of appeal of, of Jack Layton and the NDP reach their historic levels. It's not so much a love affair with, with the NDP, but rather a sort of Nobody really liked what the Liberals had on offer in, in 2011. So, Could we say the same thing about provincially Kathleen Wynne winning the last election with a majority as opposed to Andrea Horbath or Tim Hudak? Well, I think tw- uh, the last provincial election was all about the incompetence of the progressive conservatives. They yeah. ran a terrible campaign. Yeah. Where does that leave conservative and conservatism in Canada? What do they have to do? I think they need to be uh, prepared to demonstrate that they can run a competent government that pitches to the majority of support and doesn't necessarily fall in love with the marginal issues, right? I mean, how much political capital was spent by the Conservatives over a whether a young woman could wear a niqab in taking the citizenship oath or not? We're talking mm-hmm. one person out of 250, 300,000 people who entered the country that year. But by focusing so heavily on that, it really disillusioned and marginalized communities that they need in the suburbs to to form a majority government. And if they keep focusing on those issues, I think they'll find that most people won't buy their economic argument as being enough to outweigh that sort of focus on those type of politics. It seems now we live in a world of extremes. I think most Canadians find themselves in the center, yet there doesn't really seem to be anyone answering that. Uh, You know, you could say Justin Trudeau perhaps now, um, but, you know, it seems either it's far left or it's far right. Um, No one wants to be able to, or no one seems to be interested in the center anymore. Is it time to forget the base and move to where the center is or used to be? Well, I mean, I think certainly think that's what Patrick Brown is trying to do in the province of Ontario and struggling with his own party in that perspective. Certainly Mr. Harper had more success when he moved to the center and sort of marginalized those other types of voices. I would probably disagree with you in saying that, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, I think Trudeau is in the center. I think Kathleen Wynne is in the center. I think the problem that the provincial liberals have has nothing to do with being in the center, but They've just been in power for 15 years, and people are tired of them. Hmm. Um, So I don't think that they're not in the center. I think it's that we're tired. Greg Flynn has been with us, political science professor, McMaster University. Greg, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.